Hello, and welcome to the Other Tradition Podcast, with your hosts, Dr. Richard Thomas and Lex Musta. This is where we revisit our history from the perspective of the Other Tradition, where extensive interracial cooperation has always been the driver of signal improvements in our race relations. We hope this encourages our listeners to reach out multiracially in their own efforts to continue America's storied other tradition. Enjoy. Greetings. I am Lex Musta, a human amity worker, and today's podcast was recorded at the home of Barbara Talley on January 20th, 2018, where I was asked to speak about the other tradition. My association with Barbara has been instrumental in my vocation as a human amity worker. Over a score of years ago, she played this role that was central to shining a national spotlight on the race amity conferences Baha'is had begun organizing in the 1920s. As race relations were quickly deteriorating in the United States, the Baha'is launched a public initiative to assist America to apply the Baha'i principle of the oneness of humankind to address the racial issues confronting it. She helped organize and promote a brilliant documentary entitled Abdul Baha's Initiative on Race from 1921, Race Amity Conferences. This documentary combined photographs, film footage, interviews, and reenactments never assembled before into a single production. And Barbara and her committee chose to inform me during a visit to my family in 2005 that they would like me to promote this video across the nation. And what a call that was. In one moment, it enlarged the sphere of my vision to provide a message to share in every state in the nation to create race amity in America. Up until that point, I contented myself with promoting knowledge of Howard University Law School graduate Louis George Gregory, who was a leading voice for race amity in America and a race amity worker who I modeled my life after. But now, I saw that I could join into a wider national discussion on race, such as we're having here on this podcast. Now I had 52 destinations to visit. I had a video, and I had her committee's backing to open doors for me around the nation. So I began making appointments, I began traveling and showing the video in every setting I could think of. However, Barbara's brilliance and mentorship extended well beyond this priceless opportunity she gave me. She also brought me into her world to show me the benefit of her experience on how to lead these discussions correctly. On January 16, 2005, she had me speak at the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. celebration, which she had organized in Germantown, Maryland. And she invited me to speak on the topic of tracing the use of the word black to describe a peoples. Interestingly, that was a topic which came up when I spoke at her house recently. And here she is in 2018, still encouraging me, still guiding me and lifting me up, opening up her home to share this race healing message. It was a great honor to be invited to speak at her home and have my family share with hers and her friends a very lively discussion on the other tradition. Enjoy. So our topic tonight is the other tradition. And Lex, in in a, in um, a couple sentences, say what that is, and then everybody's. I want everybody to say what made you show up for that. The other tradition. Uh, many of you are familiar with the, the predominant tradition of race relations in America that everyone talks about. Very painful relation relationship that you know I don't have to go into. But the other tradition is much less known, and that's why. I think it holds so much hope for America 
in terms of us becoming familiar with the heroes and the fact that we have hundreds of years of tradition of working together uh, interracially, multiracially. And if you really look closely at all of our great improvements in race relations in America, they only came about from the other tradition, from close multiracial cooperation. So that kind of gives you heart, that we actually have a beautiful tradition to keep building off of. And that's what uh, I like to talk about because uh, it gives us so much hope. It gives you real role models to build off of. So that's what we'll be sharing tonight. Hi, everybody. I'm Susan Troxell. And I'm, I'm very interested in the power of friendships. And I'm very interested in the power of very close, intimate friendships across <clears throat> racial lines. And what a powerful force that is for helping me understand my black brothers and sisters and for helping me understand privilege and for helping me feel that I can contribute to the healing. Hi, my name is um, Trisha Bailey. This topic um, was very uh, interesting to me. I was very attracted to it because I think for me, my journey through understanding race as it plays out in America is very kind of unusual. So kind of like figuring out how to have a dialogue and how to engage this. She told me who's speaking. And boy, oh boy, oh boy. I am one of his fans. I'm telling you, we got to get to all of us. We got to get together and make him to take us to another spiritual journey. Tour. Yeah, the tour is Those, That's amazing. But... His journey, the, the journey that he took us, is amazing. So, having said that, my name is Merah Tavish. <laughs> um, I'm Radiance, and um, a student at the University of Maryland. At the University I'm the of president of the Baha'i Club. Firesides once a month there. Actually, Lex will be our next speaker, so that's exciting. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm Scott Cleveland. Um, and I, the uh, title of uh, tonight's uh, talk uh, intrigued me. Coming off of the last couple of meetings we've had here, where we've discussed um, issues of race uh, in our country that have kind of uh, brought us to a head of reckoning uh, in this country, I think, about what kind of country you want to have, and really analyzing the problem and really taking it apart. And then tonight seems like here's one of the solutions that will take us into the future. You know. My name is Zainab, and um, the topic interested me because I feel as if there, uh, clearly I think most people would agree that our country could use some, you know, race unity, like Susan mentioned, building friendships and becoming more aware of each other and different perspective. I feel like it's a little part of the solution where you can just not be overwhelmed by the negativity, but you can kind of yeah. fill your spirit up a little bit as well. So I think that's what these mm-hmm. movies help me do. I am Josiah. When I stumbled upon the topic, I said this is something I really want to kind of immerse myself in. And I think I would really like to get more perspective on this growing up in America. So that's why I'm here. So I'm Adila Curtin. Uh, I'm happy to be here, and of course the uh, topic was kind of vague, because usually 
Bob Rip gives a little bit of, you know, more stuff. When I heard <coughs> the word other, kind of resounded with me because, you know, for so long we have been the other people in this country. <laughs> and so I thought, well, yeah, well, what is that about? Um, my name is Pat Walkley. I wanted to come because I went on a little, thanks to Tori, Lex's wife went on a little tour with Lex's uh, Eastern Shore. <laughs> and Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass's. Mm -hmm. early stomping grounds. It was very, very interesting. And I've been reading a whole lot about racism and the history of this country and stuff, and I just thought it would be really nice to hear something that was more positive. And I'm looking for a more positive way to be bringing it up in groups, because I've tried different ways and gotten shot down. <laughs> really. So I'm thinking I'd better try a different method. <laughs> I'm Tori, um, I'm Lex's wife, Yusu's mother. This is our daughter, Anisu, and we're here to support Lex, of course. <laughs> uh, my name's Larry. I've always been interested in, in race relations. Matter of fact, that's one of the things that attracted me to the Baha'i faith when I started looking into uh, other religious uh, beliefs. Uh, about their principles and teachings of uh, race equality really attracted me to the faith. I've always had uh, the feeling deep down inside of me that we're all we're all equal. We're all one one race, the human race. I'm really interested in this in this theme and topic tonight. It sounds like it's going to be a wonderful uh, you know experience, and I'm just so happy to be here. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Dee Grotic. Um, I'm really excited to come to this because. Um, I've been away from, I've been out of the country working for about six years and, but I've always had, you know, really strong interracial relationships and, and had many very conservative friends and family and many very liberal, like, so, and I find I come home and we can't talk to each other and it's, it's, I've been struggling with it a lot, quite a lot, and to sort of be able to hear something positive and be reminded of the more positive tradition that we have uh, was a really good thing for me to do today so that's it that I live here um, and uh, Lex and I go how, how, how far back Lex? We go back 22 years okay thank God <laughs> so 22 years ago and Lex will probably tell you the story when he talks about mm -hmm. it but um, I've been working with uh, on race unity for, for forever and um, I like I like this particular topic I always like different topics anyway but um, I always loved Lex's energy and his excitement for the history and the unity of it all. And, of course, I've gone on, on Lex's tour, so he just brings history to life. Uh, and whatever he, he decides to do, he just makes it exciting and interesting. And so I was very excited that uh, Lex accepted my, my invitation to come. And I like the topic of the other tradition. About 20 years ago... I was doing a keynote speech on Martin Luther King Day in Iowa. And I'm like, Iowa? And I'm thinking, I don't know anything about Iowa. <laughs> that was 20 years ago. And then I thought, okay, we're going to do a Martin Luther King Day program. And if I talk about what they're talking about on TV, the dogs, the rice, whatever, the, black pe the few black people are going to get mad. The white people are going to feel guilty. And I'm saying, okay, now, and I'm supposed to motivate So what do I do? So I thought back then, I said, Okay, what am I going to do with this talk? So I decided to look at any um, examples of, of interracial 
and I don't like that term. Lex and I've been saying not use the term, but you know, mm. interhue. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> Multi-hue, multi-hue people who come together. And I said, what can I do? So I had decided that, to look into the history of that, and I realized that um, um, out of Tuskegee, um, George Washington Carver. I realized that they they said so. I was doing my history, and it said George Washington Carver had had uh, gone to school there in Iowa. And so I was, and I thought, wow. And so I was looking at his story, and I said. At one point, everything was so segregated, he wasn't able to go to certain things. But then uh, there was a family uh, that, that helped him, and I thought, wow, this is great, because the doors were totally closed to blacks in a lot of areas, and somebody behind the door had the, not only the opportunity, but the courage to open the door. And when they opened the door, this man got through, and look at how America was changed. So... I did my talk from that one, and I've been wanting to do for many years uh, 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 actually a documentary called The Historical Unity Between Blacks and Whites. And I've been collecting stories for many decades, you know, I just haven't had time to do it. But I started with that story, then I found other stories. And like when you see that bridge in Selma, you know, and you see all this stuff, and there was this young lady who left her family and ended up dying. I mean, there was, you know, even in Harper's Ferry, you know, um, you got John Brown. We used to say, oh, John Brown, like, oh, I didn't know who John Brown was when I grew up, but I realized here's a man who was so devoted to unity that he told, he, he, he arranged to have, you know, black people get armed. He said, that's the only reason why they have power over you. They got arms. If you get arms, things will be a little bit equal. And not only did he put his own life on the line, his family put their life on the line. His, uh, there was one story where his son was there lying, dying, and he was, you know, I mean, some people, if they, some people are interested and some people are committed. They say like a breakfast, you know, they say that the, 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 the pig is committed. If you, got, if you have a breakfast that's got some bacon and eggs, <laughs> the pig is committed. <laughs> the chicken's interested. Right? <laughs> and with that, I'm going to turn it over to Lex. Because <laughs> he's committed. <laughs> All of us are committed or interested. I'm going to ask you about which one. But we got a, a broad range between that. So Lex, thank you so much and welcome. Thank you. Here so I can look at your face. So I'm going to pass along this vial, and I'd like everyone to take a look at it. I call it uh, Liberty Water. I uh, was recently celebrating the 168th anniversary of Harriet Tubman's self-liberation from enslavement. And this, is, this bit of water that you see in that vial was gathered at the headwaters of the Choptank River. That's where it's crossable. You know, it's where a river begins. It's called the headwaters. And so you're sitting there where she crossed, in the same temperature, you know, it's freezing, pretty freezing cold at the end of October when she escaped. And we went down and we picked up this little bit of vial of Liberty water. And the reason I did that, the reason I went there to commemorate her liberation, her moment of liberation, was because her life embodies this other tradition. She's one of these heroes we should all know, but not know as some distant metaphor, but as a real person. Harriet Tubman, who I picture here, Adisu uh, plays with a Harriet Tubman doll every day when we give her a bath. You know, I want her to know Harriet. And so I'm just going to share a quick story about her life so you can kind of start to picture her as a real person, somebody you could relate to. Who has a sister or brother who's who's like two years or less difference? Many of us do, right? I have a great closeness to my brother who's two years. Harriet was fortunate that her older sister, Lena, uh, had a daughter. 
um, Kasaya, who was three years different. So you're kind of very close. You know her very well. And of course, you adore your oldest sibling. I mean, I, I adore my oldest sibling. And I'm, I'm sure Harriet did as well. And then she's barely 11 years old. And Lena is kidnapped away and ransomed off someplace she never saw her again. So as an 11-year-old, how do you even understand your reality? And then there's one very special thing about her life that's so important, and that her mother was promised her freedom. And I've realized, and I'll tell you a couple more stories about other people, but the change in your mindset when you know you're going to be free, it's quite dramatic. And you just put yourself in her shoes. Would you not prepare for that moment? Harriet would dive in the middle of winter down in the river to get those muskrats because she could sell them. You know, her, her, her enslaver would allow her to sell them. He takes a few cents, she gets a few cents, and she would put them in a little jar and she was filling up that jar. I mean, the skills you'd pick up. I mean, you'd just be generally in a different state of awareness. If you know, I'm preparing for a day when every single second of my life is my own. Oh my God, what am I going to do? What am I? Just imagine yourself. So that's, she's that type of person. She knew she was to be free. Of course, tragically, uh, the person was very cruel and didn't grant that freedom because they, they, uh, you know, they can't go to court to defend yourself and just says you know, a very ridiculous thing saying, well, I'm going to be impoverished if that happens. So the court goes, oh, okay, you know, forget that. But in terms of her mindset, she's getting ready. And then her sister's gone. You know, the ultimate cruelty. So she, of course, took an extra caring to Kasaya. Wouldn't you? You know, she's got no mother. And you love her. And you already loved her. And now you love her more. And to show that Kasaya gave that love right back, her first daughter was named after Harry Tubman. Right? So it shows. We, can, we, we know this is a close relationship. We can relate to it. Two years difference, three years difference. No mother. I'm taking care of her. I'm helping make sure she succeeds. So now, going back to the Chop Tank River, is everyone starting to see that? Is it still making its rounds around? Lex, where yeah. exactly is that? So Eastern Shore, Maryland. Remember, there was no Bay Bridge. Okay, uh, East Shore, Maryland, is as south as any of the south. Uh, you know, in in Eastern Maryland, they still just voted and they decided to keep their Confederate statue. You didn't have to go to Georgia to experience the South here. And so Choptank River. Uh, at the Cambridge, if you're going to Cambridge, down the main road, it's quite wide there, right? You, you go over it for maybe a minute to drive over the chop tank, right? And then it just goes up towards Delaware in a northeasterly direction, okay? Greensboro, Maryland is, is where I was at the headwaters. And when Harriet then was in this position, she now got liberated herself. She's off in Philadelphia. She was left on an interracial, the Underground Railroad's an interracial cooperation. I mean, you can't look at the Underground Railroad and not see the first civil rights movement in America. I mean, it is an interracial, there's no way to define it either way. Like, William Still is working the stop when she went to Philadelphia, but William Garrett, who's a European-American, who gave up his life and his fortune for this purpose, is in Delaware, right, in Wilmington. So, you know, I mean, every step, it, it, there's no way to understand this. In fact... Harriet was working in her labors. A Quaker lady walked by her and just said, hey, and named a safe house for her. So you can even see that 
sparks in her mind. As we know, she's already thinking about freedom. Now she's thinking about her sister just taken away. I could be taken away tomorrow. So now she's going, oh, I got a safe house. So she went and freed. But then she gets word from her uncle, Daniel, in Baltimore. Has anyone been to Fort McHenry in Baltimore? So you know what I'm talking about? That used to be the 17th Ward. It's now, 17th Ward is different, but the 17th Ward in the 1840s was there. And that was huge shipping area. And just like with Frederick Douglass, I don't know if you know the life of Frederick Douglass, but he learned to read in Baltimore. And so you could send your captive victims to Baltimore to work for you, to do shipping and so on. So this was very common between Eastern Shore and Baltimore. So you shouldn't be surprised that Harriet's uncle, Daniel, uh, was, was, was over in Baltimore, and they got word to her that Kasaya is now going to go. And so the reason I'm going to tell this story is I want you to see the brilliance of Harry Tubman. So you don't have to say, Harry Tubman liberated people. I want you to know how brilliant she is. So put yourself in this position. Kasaya, December 1950, is on the auction block. Okay, we're in Cambridge. I don't know if you've been to Cambridge. The auction block uh, is there at the courthouse. The river kind of runs around here. The chop tank's coming here. And then you just cross over, and, and there's this, this courthouse that still stands today, a cemetery just across the street. How are you going to free her? I mean, this is not like some of Harry's other escapes, her parents, who she took from where they were living. What would you do? I mean, it's a middle of daylight, heavy guards, and she's there. Well, Kasaya's husband is one of the greatest men of the Eastern Shore at the time. He, had, he got his manumission, his, his enslaver kept his word and liberated him. And he had two skills. Again, I take you to his mindset. If you study again and again, you're going to see the people who were the most brilliant of our first kind of freed individuals, like, like uh, Kasaya's husband. He was a blacksmith and a shipbuilder. On the Eastern Shore, you had less than 10 blacksmiths and less than 10 shipbuilders. So he had taught himself two of the most valuable skills because he knew he was going to be free. So he and his brothers had actually afforded to buy themselves a boat. They actually owned a schooner. He's running stuff up and forth. He's fixing people's boats. He's, I mean, this guy is a successful genius. So he comes up and he, they're at Daniel's house in Baltimore on the 17th Ward talking to Harriet and playing out a strategy. And here's the strategy they came up with. So Kasaya's there and one of our European-American friends of Harriet bids and says, I'm going to pay the ransom for this chattel slavery and wins this auction, you know, wins this ransom payment. But then Sir Auctioner, somehow he wiggles and goes, let's go for lunch. Good idea. So you could picture how she must have done that. You know, I'll treat you to lunch, maybe the person said. And the person said, oh, you're treating. Okay. Auction adjourned for a moment and they went off. And when they're off, <laughs> they go... And they literally uh, go, hey, I just bid. I want to go and see this young woman. And so they literally took Kasaya and liberated her at that moment. And they hit her out in a European-American's house. So when everyone's going to go crazy in a second. So then the auction resumes, and they go, where is that sir who owes me the whatever amount of money? It doesn't come. And that sometimes happens at auction. It wasn't like a big deal at that point. He literally then started again to seek a ransom for Kasaya. And somebody else bid and go, okay, and now this, this pirate has, has paid the ransom. But Kasaya wasn't there. And so then everyone starts looking around and everything and couldn't find her. And then, if you can imagine it, they eventually went on to 
her husband and John's boat, and they went up to Baltimore, and then he hid out in Baltimore Dental's house, and then they eventually made up to Philadelphia, to William Still's house. This just shows you, she did this amazing complexity that I think you'd probably have trouble, you'd be strained to figure out something else similar to that to save the situation. Now, I want to just step back now from the point of view of the other tradition and look at her life. And Baha'u'llah gives us a nice lens to look at a person like uh, Harriet Tubman. All Baha'is say this obligatory prayer every day. And, and there's three kind of in aspects of our humanity, our being, that we're all very familiar with, that it asks us to really focus in a certain way. It says to know God, to worship or love God, and also to testify to God. So you've got action, knowledge, love. So let's just think about these three aspects of our existence. Action, knowledge, and love. And the son of Baha'u'llah, Abdu'l-Bahá, kind of give us a nice perspective to think about how do we love differently, know differently, and act differently to change our life. And he says that we've kind of entered an era of maturity. So let's just think about these three things in the difference between adolescence, how do adolescents love, and how do adults love. So you can think about your child, and there's a lot of self-love. What am I doing? What do I want? But as an adult, one of the challenges of you becoming a mature person is to to love in a universal way, right? You've got to love all things. You know, think about how do you understand the world, knowledge. Kids see it as a kind of a battle as a jungle. You know, I've got to fight for my job, I've got to fight for my education, I've got to fight for this, I've got to fight for this. But as an adult, you see the world as one. You know, you're going to have a more mature view of the world. So if you see the world as one, you're no longer trying to win, but you're trying to, you're trying to seek truth and justice. Because if, if, if the world's just one, you don't have to beat anybody. You're not in a jungle fighting people, but this is all me. So therefore, I seek truth and justice. I want it to be a beautiful, truthful, and just world. After Baha'u'llah, you had Abdul Baha was the second leader of the Baha'i faith, and then Shoki Effendi was the third appointed leader of the Baha'i faith. And I'm going to just share with you a beautiful statement of how he tied this knowledge, love, and action towards this other tradition. He said it so beautifully that I want to uh, share it from direct words that he wrote. Because it's going to bring us back to Harriet Tubman to think about how can I literally know differently, love differently, and act differently for race relations. And he says, Let there be no mistake. The principle of the oneness of mankind, the pivot around which the teachings of Baha'u'llah revolve. So this aspect, we've heard many people tonight say their attraction to the Baha'i faith was from this race Relations. Well, the very pivot of the Baha'i faith is race relations, the oneness of mankind. And it's saying it's no mere out, outburst of ignorant emotionalism or an expression of vague and pious hope. So Baha'u'llah is not asking for us just to dream of a utopia. But he says it's an appeal is not to be merely identified with a reawakening of the spirit of brotherhood. So there is this aspect of love. You know, that a spirit of brotherhood. But it's not just that, right? So it's not sufficient to just go, I love those people, right? I love Haitians. But when Haitian has an earthquake, I'm not going to actually go down there and help. You know, but I love them, right? It's not enough just to have the love. And it says, nor does it aim solely at the fostering of harmonious cooperation among individual peoples and nations. So 
Yes, we also need all your actions. You should seek, are they mutually interracial, multiracial actions, right? Your, your actions are not limited to one group. But that's not, again, not sufficient. <coughs> he concludes, its implications are deeper, its claims greater than any of the prophets old. It says that we're, we must seek actually to have uh, organic change in humanity such that we're actually united. So we need an organic unity. So we actually become one, but yet diver- infinitely diverse in our constituent parts. The point is that your knowledge, you have to actually understand that the world is going to be a unified whole. Right? That's actually where we're headed. So you, you actually have to have the knowledge too, so you know why you're working. Reverend Francis Grim- Grimke was the leading reverend in D.C., in 1918, at the uh, 15th Street Presbyterian Church. And he said to the Baha'is who wrote him and said, you know, please study Abdu'l-Baha's life. He goes, I've studied Baha'u'llah's, Abdu'l-Baha's life very carefully, but he said, the spirit of brotherhood is already in the church, right? And that's true, right? It is. But you now look at that same church, you can go visit the 15th Street Presbyterian Church still. It's still an African-American congregation 100 years later. Right? Because he didn't have a knowledge, right? it wasn't an impetus that he also had to create a unity, right? which is very challenging and difficult. I want to go back to Harriet Tubman now, looking at her life. Her uncle Daniel in the 17th Ward was there with her son John in 1850 when Harriet Tubman came to Baltimore. And John's son Frank moved back to St. Michael's, Maryland and he was born in 1857. He was then the first generation of her family liberated with the 1865 liberation. Not Harriet Tubman freed many of her family members. She couldn't free every one of them. And so they became literate. They got a third grade education. And then Frank's son had a very kind of interesting experience. So you can think about this. That Frank's son, Percy, was born in 1902. Imagine then, you're now living in freedom in the Eastern Shore. In 1940, over on Route 1, he was working as a 38-year-old, 84 hours per week, 50 weeks a year, for $240 in 1940. Right? So it's 84 hours per week, 50 weeks per year. But Percy had a daughter, Dorothy, in 1930, and Dorothy then finally left this eastern shore and left this sharecropping environment and moved to New York. And Barbara Talley, who did you say, Harriet, uh, Harriet Tubman's fifth cousin, is Barbara Talley. And so I prepared for her, her family tree. <laughs> I don't know, 30 years ago, because I was raised in upstate New York. My father was from Aiken, South Carolina in 1909, but my mother was from the Eastern Shore, Eastern Maryland. And, but my mother died at, when I was three. So I didn't grow up down there. So I knew we were from there, but we didn't know anybody. But one day when I had moved from New York and I was in Maryland, I was listening to the radio and they started talking about this lady named Araminta Ross. For some reason, I just stopped and I was like, it started listening, and then they said Araminta uh, changed her name to Harriet 
and made and married a guy named Tubman. And the only reason I stopped because my mother's maiden name was Ross from the Eastern Shore. <laughs> and I thought, what? Because, you know, I want to be a Black Panther. I was like, there's, there's, there's always been some militants. In- <laughs> what? <laughs> Where? And so it was interesting because, so we, uh, when I heard that, there was just something in my brain that says, there was like this connection, but I didn't, you know, I, I did get in touch uh, with my aunt um, probably about, was it 20 years ago, 25 years ago? How long ago? About 20 or so. About 20 years ago, because they were still down there. She was still down there. And I call up, and I had, you know, people used to write letters. So I found this old letter, and I called up this lady, and I said, um, uh, did you, ha-? I said, hi, you know, is this Hilda Jackson? And she said, yeah. <laughs> I said, well, this is an odd phone call. I said, but did you have a, a sister named Dorothy? And she said, yes. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm a person, oh, Lord. And she started crying on the phone. She said, we never knew what happened to you girls. Huh. And so, um, you know, we, met, we went down and we, we met the family. And she's passed on now, but um, we met the family. And, and after I, you know, thought about that, and, you know, Eastern, Eastern is really tiny. I mean, that place down there is not, you know, my aunt, all these aunts and everybody. And, of course, my, my grandfather was named Percy. I did not, I never met him, so I didn't know him. Um, or if I did, I was too young to know it. I probably, I, I Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking that, that he might have been alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know when he died? Yeah. Okay. So. okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but that was, you know, but when I asked my aunt, when I heard, of, you know, because now once I got to know the family, I said, hey, you guys, you know, you're down here where Harriet tell me you're Rosses, you know. Uh, and she said, I said, were you uh, related? Did, did the uh, old po- folks ever talk about mm-hmm. being related to Harriet tell me? She said, yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> she said, but I, you know, you didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Because I guess back then you talked about it. I, I never had any proof, you know, just like my dad said his, his cousin was Lena Horne, and, but she never came to visit, so how do I know? <laughs> <laughs> On my dad's side. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so thank you, Lex. Um, what are our fifth cousin? Oh, I'm fifth cousin. About this now. <laughs> it took someone like Barbara, who, like I said, lives these things. So you want to see someone who lives the other tradition who actually thinks differently. You know, who actually puts race unity at the center of their life? Barbara Talley. Who actually acts differently? You know, puts on a race amity fireside, puts on MLK days. She actually takes the actions. And who has love? You know, Barbara has shown me such love over the years. Anytime I want to call and I'm feeling down, I'm feeling up, I want to share her excitement, she'll take the call. You know, she shares unconditional love. So all these qualities are in Barbara Talley. And when I found out, because many years ago, Barbara told me about possible link to Harriet Tubman, but she just recently gave me enough information so I could find it. Because me and my wife, one of our hobbies is doing genealogy. It wasn't that hard to find the connection because uh, in the censuses, it always shows. There was one, one family member of, of Barbara's saw that sharecropping situation and got confused by it and thought Percy's parents are Mr. and Mrs. Jackson. Mr. and Mrs. Jackson are European descent. <laughs> Percy is not European descent, you know. But you, in those days, do you understand? In 1940, you don't drive home at night, <laughs> you know. That's 50 miles away. You're working at this amalgam farm, and you're working 89 hours. The most I've ever worked in a week is 60. And I tell you, that was in my prime when I was 20, and I was just like, ah, you know. I thought 60 was pretty good, you know. But working uh, 89 hours 
how many hours even are there in a week? You know, <laughs> if you take away sleep, I mean, that's almost like 90% of, of waking hours working. So that's why he was at Jackson's. You know, it wasn't because he uh, was their child. Harriet Tubman would have been protecting family members in Baltimore to see that connection. And this, this is the kind of benefit we get by knowing the other tradition, knowing who our heroes are and making these connections across time. There is a whole other tradition for us to be inspired by. All the people who Harriet Tubman worked with, like William Still, she's called the mother of the Underground Railroad. The father's called William Still. I'd never been to his grave. It's just up in Philadelphia. I went to visit it. And I found out after the war, he became a multimillionaire, and he paid for this whole cemetery. And he's got a beautiful spot that overlooks the whole place. And he's the father of the Underground Railroad. So it's an amazing uh, area uh, of study. And I think it's useful to do because in every single place you are, there's heroes of the other tradition. And that's what uh, Dr. Thomas, who coined the term the other tradition, he said he was teaching a racism course for 30 years and the students would always leave depressed and upset. But then he goes, now I'm teaching other tradition? They feel role models. Even in the worst parts of American history, you have role models. And that picture of Harriet Tubman, you might not have seen either. No, I didn't. See what I mean? How would you still find new pictures of Harriet Tubman to see? And this is one where she's young and powerful and freeing Kasaya. So it's a really uh, a powerful picture to see instead of seeing her when she's so elderly. I mean, obviously, even elderly, she had her dignity. But, you know, here gives you a clear image of that. So that was my mother. Look. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Mm. They did their hair the same way. Wow. <laughs> Look at that. Wow. I didn't get a picture of my mom until I was like in my 40s. I didn't know what she looked like. Wow. And it's interesting that you were talking about um, uh, how hard he worked my grandfather, because when my, when my mother had the car, when we had, we had the car accident and my mother died, mm-hmm. uh, well, she didn't die right away. She, she broke her uh, neck. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, she was, dry, she was riding and she put her head on the, on the glove compartment. And there was, uh, I guess my father fell, fell asleep at the wheel and her head went into the glove box. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on the impact, people pulled her, they tried to pull her out, which broke her neck, but she was pregnant. So... They told my uh, father that she needed to stay in the hospital in traction. And, what, and my father was an alcoholic growing up. He, he most about what I remember. Um, but he, was, he would say, sometimes he would be drunk and he would cry. And he said, but she begged me. He said, she begged me to take her out of the hospital. He said, I know I shouldn't have listened. Doctor said, he said, but she begged me. He said, your mother begged me. And I, you know, of course, I was three years old. I didn't know what had happened. But evidently, but, but you can think about in the, in the, in the 50s uh, in, in, um, Her- in Pennsylvania there. What it might have been like, I mean, maybe she wasn't at one of those places. And plus she had a lot of little kids. They, my brother, who was older, who was about 12 at the time I was three, said they knocked on the door mm-hmm. and said, um, where's your dad? And he said, I didn't know. He said, so they pushed open the door and told us to get, get dressed, and they took us all away. So they took my brother and my older sister to an orphanage, and then mm-hmm. they took us and put us into foster care, my sisters, and some of us went mm-hmm. here and some went there. But anyway, um, I used to wonder, like, why, why didn't they come and get us with all the family? So I wasn't, I think I was kind of mad with them a little bit mm-hmm. down there because I'm thinking, you know we exist. Why didn't you come get us? Why did you let us go through what we went through? Mm-hmm. And then my brother, who, who uh, he, he said the orphanage, he said they were actually kind of nice. He said the people were the orphanage. I said, well, they weren't nice where we went. Mm-hmm. And so they said that um, one of my aunts was supposed to take them. Mm-hmm. So they said the orphanage people drove them down to, to, to Easton. 
but they weren't there. Now back then, we didn't have cell phones and stuff like that, so you get a, you know. So they said the grandparents they had that that their, they had their information or address, so they found them, and so they ended up staying with the grandparents. And I said, well, why didn't they come and get us? He said they were so poor. He said that they lived on about twenty five dollars a week. He said the house was so small and poor. He said they had, he had to run a wire upstairs to have any electricity upstairs. So as I got older and learned the story, I guess I got, I mean, I don't know if I was angry or indifferent. I'm like, if y'all didn't care about us, then I, I'm okay, I'll just do my thing. But then learn, he said that they, um, they, he lived on about $25 a week. He said they worked on a chicken factory or a chicken farm or something. He said when they would load up the chickens, the ones that would get away, they would find them later, and that's how they survived and ate. So they were, he said, they were extremely poor. He said, you'd be, you'd be glad you stayed in New York. <laughs> um, however, that turned out. Because, you know, he said, well, he got old enough. I guess he went off to, to uh, uh, the military and married a German woman and stuff. So his life just changed. He, he didn't go back to that. Mm-hmm. So now he's a policeman in Texas. <laughs> but uh, interesting story that, that uh, and I noticed the grandmother's name on it because I did meet her once. Mm-hmm. And um, they gave me a copy of her driver's license with her name on it. So I have that, you know, in my stuff. And so I looked at her name. So I was familiar with her yeah. name. Yeah. I never met my grandfather. So that's yeah. interesting to see. It's not that far away that, you know, that this, you know, I mean, I felt something, but I had nothing concrete to say, you know, because yeah. everybody wants to be, you know, related to somebody yeah. famous and cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're not, if you're not too cool, you're like, ah, no, that's a different group. That's not us. But, you know, I, I kind of felt something that moment. I'm like, wow, what are the odds of that? Thank you for joining us on this Other Tradition podcast. It is brought to you by DC Time Travel Tours, where you experience history.